The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I want to begin by asking you to take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, and there is one verse in particular that I want to delve into in answering this topic, the meaning of history. Uh, This is no small assignment that has been uh, laid before me to speak on the meaning of history, so I need no small text from which to speak, and I think you will see that my text for the evening will be more than sufficient to answer this thrust regarding the meaning of history. I want to begin reading in verse 33, Romans 11, verse 33, but our entire time tonight will really be more of an opening up of verse 36. So by way of really introduction leading into verse 36, let's begin in verse 33. Paul has just laid the most comprehensive uh, framework for salvation in the entire Bible, beginning in Romans chapter 1 and extending now through Romans chapter 11. There is nowhere else in the entire Bible where we have such a a systematic theology regarding the doctrine of salvation. And so as we come now to verse 33, Paul is, is hitting the high note. This is like the crescendo at the end of a symphony. This is the highest mountain peak in a a lofty mountain range. This is as high and as glorious as it can be. So beginning in verse 33, Paul writes, oh, something of the depth of his heart. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who became his counselor? Those are rhetorical questions, the answers of which are no one. God doesn't go to someone for counseling. And no one has ever instructed God in anything. Verse 35, or... Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? God is no one's debtor and everyone is his debtor. And now our text for the evening, verse 36. Try to wrap your mind around this. For from him and through him And to him are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. The topic that has been assigned to me tonight is to address this subject, the meaning of history. To address this is to ask the question, what is God doing 
in the world? Is there a purpose for what he is doing? Is there divine intentionality? Is there divine purpose to the course and to the flow of what is occurring in the world? Does God have a master plan? Does he have a chief aim for what is occurring in the world? Now this leads to another set of questions. If God does have a supreme overriding purpose for history, is this only in the macro? Is it only the big picture? Does this extend to the micro? Does this extend his plan to every detail of history? Does his plan include each individual? Does it include each individual here tonight? Does it include every event and every circumstance that there is in the entirety of history? Is anything random? Are there any accidents? Is there such a thing as chance? Is there fate? Is there good luck? Bad luck? Is there anything that just happens? Is there anything that is meaningless? This is the focus of our message tonight. According to our text, there is a definite meaning to history, a very specific meaning to history. And that meaning is the manifestation and the magnification of the glory of God. Everything in history is designed to unveil the glory of God. Everything that occurs in the macro and in the micro is to be a theater to display the supremacy of God and His greatness and His grandeur. History is linear. History is not circular. History is not without order. History is not random. History has a definite goal. Have History has a definite means to reach that definite goal. And all that occurs in history is but an individual thread in the larger tapestry of revealing the glory of God. On one side of a tapestry, on the bottom side, on the back side, there are muted threads. There is no pattern or design that necessarily is seen. And there are frayed threads that come through on the back side. And so often that is our perspective of history, certainly of the natural man. But on the other side of the tapestry, every thread finds its perfect place in being woven together to reveal one perfect picture. And so it is with history. Every occurrence, every individual, every event has its place in the meaning of history. It was Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England in the 17th century, who said, What are all histories 
but God manifesting himself. And then it's to say history is but the theater to display the glory of God throughout the whole earth, from age to age and from generation to generation, through men and women, through circumstances and events, through movements and causes. William Plummer once wrote, Blessed is he who sees God in history and in nature as well as in revelation. And more specifically, the key to understanding the direction and the flow of world history is to understand God's sovereign purpose in building his kingdom here upon the earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly said, quote, The key to the history of the world is the kingdom of God. In other words, world history cannot be understood apart from redemptive history, apart from even church history. And this is the very heart of what God is doing in the world. God is calling out a people unto himself that they may become citizens in his heavenly kingdom and in so doing, they become the bride of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all for the honor and the glory of the Father. This is the hinge of history. This is the meaning of history. I want us to look now at this one verse, Romans 11, verse 36. And here is the summation of the most comprehensive presentation of the doctrine of salvation that is set forth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I want to read the verse one more time. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I want to dissect this verse in half and set before you two main headings of thought. In the first half of this verse, I want you to see a God-centered theology. In the second half of this verse, I want you to see a God-centered doxology. And the two are inseparably bound together, for there is no doxology apart from theology, and there is no high doxology apart from a high theology. I want to begin with the first half of this verse. I want to set before you the first main heading, a God-centered theology. We cannot understand the meaning of history without first understanding the first half of verse 36. This verse begins with an extraordinary statement that is all-inclusive in its scope. This is the most comprehensive statement in the world, in the universe. This is the most comprehensive thought that can ever enter any human mind. This is the entire Bible in miniature form. This is an entire forest in but an acorn. This verse, everything revolves around the prepositions. These three prepositions... From, through, to. This is to say God is the source of all things. God is the means of all things. 
And God is the goal of all things. Or to put it another way, God is the beginning of everything. God is the middle of everything. And God is the end of everything. Now the first half of verse 36 is a virtual systematic theology within itself. And I want to say again, it is the most all-inclusive, God-centered statement in the entire Bible. A few other verses speak much to the same of the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the first half of this verse. Before I read these verses, let me give you this. There is nothing outside of the first half of this verse. Nothing exists outside of the first half of this verse. The entire universe, the entire created order, and everything that occurs within the universe is self-contained within this statement from Him, through Him, to Him, are all things that we would know that this is not a unique verse. Other verses say much the same. 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6 says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Did you hear that? From him, for him, by him, through him. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 12 says, All things originate from God. Ephesians 4, verse 6 says, There is one God and Father of all, now listen to this, who is over all and through all and in all. In Mobile we would then say, y'all. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Hebrews 2, 10. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Wrap your mind around that. From Him, through Him, in Him, by Him, for Him, all things. You and I will never understand the meaning of history until we grasp the profundity of what Paul has just said. In the book of Romans, this can be layered out into three subheadings. And I want you to think with me and think with the Apostle Paul, from him, through him, to him, is true in three areas. Creation, history and providence, and salvation. If I had time tonight, I would add judgment. 
as well. Let's begin with creation. Who here tonight would disagree regarding creation that all things are from Him and through Him and to Him? Out of nothing, nothing comes. There had to be a first cause, a creator who brought everything into being out of nothing, and that first cause, the great creator, was none other than God himself. Creation is from him. It has originated from God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John 1.10, the world was made through him. Nothing could be more clear. Nothing could be a more self-apparent truth. If there was ever a time when there was nothing, then there could never be anything. God must have always existed for there to be anything. And if there was ever a time when there was nothing, not even God, then there would be nothing today. Because out of nothing, nothing comes. From Him, God is the source of all things. All the created order. It is God who spoke everything into being on Six consecutive days. God said, let there be light, and there was light. It was God who hung the stars in the place and put all of the planets in their perfect place. It was God who set the earth exactly where it is, on its axis, tilted just as it is, and spun the planets into space. It was God who created the first man. It was God who created uh, the perfection of the human body. My father was a medical professor for over 30 years, and he said to me, Stephen, I would be a Christian, I would be a believer if there was no other evidence but the human eye. Just look at the human eye, the perfection, the precision of the human eye. That didn't just happen. And there was a master creator of infinite genius with precision who has formed us and fashioned us. It's from God. But not only is everything from Him, everything is through Him in the created order. That everything is through Him means that God is the sustainer of all that He has created. God is the one who holds it all together. And God is the one who provides for and supports and upholds all that He has made. Colossians 1 verse 17 says, In Him all things hold together. Sometimes people become in a panic. And they go, the world's going to blow up. Nothing is going to blow up. God has the whole world in His hand. 
and he sustains and he supports everything. It is God who sends the weather. It is God who gives the changing of the seasons. It is God who gives the harvest. It is God who causes the the process of evaporation and the flowing of the river and the moving of the clouds, etc., etc., etc. It is all the handiwork of God. God is not the God of the deists who is far removed and disconnected from what He has created. No, God is in the details of everything. There are no maverick molecules in the entire universe. Write that down. It is all under the supreme control and command of God. The entire created order, it is from Him, it is through Him, and it is to Him. It is to show forth something of the greatness and the awesomeness and the the majesty of Almighty God that He is so far beyond us. And we are at best little ants just down here. And we look at the mountains. We look at the ocean. We look at the sun. We look at the created order around us. And even a blind man ought to be able to see something of the character and the nature of the Creator who put it in its place. Earlier in Romans 1 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes this, he says, For since the creation of the world, from the very beginning, from day one, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature, listen to this, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Every human being on planet earth can look up into the skies, can look at the mountains, the majesty of the ocean, the changing of the seasons, Any thinking human being who has two cells that touch between their ears in their brain can be able to see that there is a God in heaven and that the entire creation is from Him and through Him and to Him. This is why we are so utterly opposed to the humanistic philosophies of evolution. They are a frontal attack on the glory of God. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Are your eyes open? Are your ears open? Are you breathing? From Him, through Him, to Him are all things. But that's just creation. That's just the stage upon which history is played out. 
This is just the created world in which God will bring the flow of history to pass. And not only is it true of creation, but it is also true of history and providence. I want you to look at the verse yet again. For from him and through him and to him are some things, a few things, are many things, are most things, are a lot of things, are all things. In Texas, that's what they put in their car, all. Are all things. Not only is creation, but so also is history and providence. Turn with me back to Romans 8 and verse 28. A text with which most of us here this evening are very familiar This text speaks of how actively God is involved in history. And in Romans 8 and verse 28 we read, and we know that God causes, please note, doesn't passively observe, uh, does not merely assume an indifferent posture. It does not say that God has withdrawn himself or removed himself from what is taking place in the world. And this is a very active word. This is a very hands-on word that God causes how many things? Some things, few things, most things. God causes all things. There's nothing outside of all things. That God causes all things to work. God is an active working God. That God is causing all things to work. Together. He brings it all together. There there are no loose ends. There are no loose threads. Every single thing in the entire created universe and everything that takes place on the stage of human history, every event, every circumstance, God causes all things to work together, to mesh together. Note what it says. To those who love God to work together, excuse me, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His his purpose. This purpose is God's eternal plan from before the foundation of the world. Who would begin to build something without a blueprint, without a master plan? So it is with God. God is not making this up as history unfolds. God is not just one step ahead of us. From before the foundation of the world, God had a purpose. And God is causing all things to work together for the good of His people and for the glory of His name 
according to his purpose. Nothing on the stage of human history will deviate from his purpose. Man proposes, but God disposes. History is but his story. I want you to come back to eternity past with me. And I want you to turn to another verse. I want to show you one verse. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. And as you turn to Ephesians 1 and verse 11, we find ourselves in eternity past. Before the world was created. Verse 4 says, before the foundation of the world... There were no molecules, there were no planets, there were no angels, there was not even a heaven, there was only God and God alone. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they came together, if you will, to counsel among themselves. And I want to read verse 11, and I want you to see what took place in that eternal boardroom ages ago. The last two words of verse 10, in him, meaning in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Do some of those words look familiar to you? Do you recognize all things? Do you recognize purpose? There are four key words that I want you to note, and I want to put them in proper order. We have them simply here in grammatical, syntactical order, but I want to place them in theological order. These four words that you see here are predestined, purpose, counsel, and will. Put these four words in their proper order and you will understand the meaning of history. What came first? First, there was God's counsel. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit convened in an eternal council. And in this eternal council, they took into consideration every conceivable possibility that there could have been for not only the created world, but for everything that would take place within the created world. They could have made the sky green and the grass blue. They could have created one world. They could have created 10 million worlds. Out of their counsel came their will. There was one choice that was made. One determinative choice 
for everything that would come to pass. This will was determined, verse 4 tells us, before the foundation of the world. And verse 11 tells us that it was so all-inclusive that it encompasses all things. When in history you would be born, what your gender would be, who your parents would be, where on the globe you would be born, who would live next door to you on the left and to the right, where you would go to school, what would be your strengths, what would be your weaknesses, what would be your physical appearance, who you would meet to marry, when you would meet that person, the number of children that you would have, the gender of those children, and the total number of days that you would live here upon this earth. It was all determined by God's sovereign will. All things. First was his counsel, then his will. And all of our days were written in his book when as yet there was not one of them. Out of his will came his purpose. And God's purpose is that he resolved to carry out his will. He would not be turned to the left nor to the right. He would not yield to any man, nor any king, nor any nation, that all of his will, God purposed, would come to pass. There would be no plan B. There would be no plan C. There would be no plan triple Z to the 26th power. It was all set and fixed by God, and he resolved with eternal purpose to be the executor of his sovereign will. Then fourth is the word predestined, the big P word. It's a biblical word. It's a God word. The word predestined means that the destination is determined before the journey begins. The word predestined pro ridzo means that on the horizon God has already marked out the destination and the destiny long before we ever arrive at that destiny. And when God predestines something, God sets it in concrete and it becomes fixed, it becomes immutable, it becomes irresistible. And there are not enough forces in hell or out of hell or upon the earth or in heaven itself to ever alter God's eternal purpose. It is predestined. This counsel which gave his will, which he purposed and predestined, includes all things.
even sin, even Satan, even the fall of man. As Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And though God is not the author of sin, God is the author of a plan that includes sin. And sin has its purpose to serve as the black velvet backdrop upon which the diamonds of His sovereign grace shine forth the brightest. And so Romans 8.28 says, For we know, and you need to know, that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. History has been prescripted by God. Every occurrence. And the word foreknowledge does not mean that God is looking down the tunnel of time to see what would happen. That is a pagan idea. God has never learned anything. God never looks into the future to ever learn anything because God already knows everything. Why would He need to look into the future? And God already knows everything because He has foreordained everything. The foreordination of God is synonymous with His predestination. This eternal script from before the foundation of the world, theologians call it His eternal decree. It is from Him. Who else would have been there to have written in his book? There were no angels. There was no one created. There was only God and God alone. And all that is in his book, God is the sole author of that book. And no one can pry into that book and alter or change anything. Isaiah 14, verse 26, verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for His outstretched hand, who can turn it back? Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. What distinguishes God from us? What distinguishes God from the idols? What distinguishes God from every other false god? There are many things, but what follows is this. That God is the God who has ordained the future. He sees the future because He has ordained the future. And it shall all come to pass as He has planned it. So verse 10 of Isaiah 46. 
declaring the end from the beginning. That means that God stands at the beginning and God looks to the end and God determines the end and works backwards to the beginning. He has gone to the end. He has determined the end and all the way back to where he stands at the beginning, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. I will do it. That is God. And that is history. History is the unfolding of His eternal purpose and plan from before time began. Aren't you glad that God is not going to the line of scrimmage and calling an audible? Aren't you glad your life is not a multiple choice? Aren't you glad that the one who has perfect wisdom and a perfect plan that cannot be improved upon one iota, aren't you glad that He is the one who is seated upon the throne and that there is not the government of the United States or the government of Canada or some council or some group of people somewhere who have the reins of history? It is all in His hands. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Isaiah 48, verse 3, I declared the former things long ago and they went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Psalm 33, verses 11 and 12 are jaw-dropping verses that speak to how God brings all of His purposes to completion. Let me begin reading in verse 8. Let me begin reading in verse 6. Let's go back to Genesis 1. No. <laughs> let, me, let me... I need a little runway to taxi this 747. This is not a helicopter going straight up. This is a jumbo jet right here. Look at verse... Beginning in verse 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. Can we buy into that? Is there agreement on this? For by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the depths in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world Stand in awe of Him. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people, the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. My friend, that is God. That is the God of the Bible. That is the God of heaven. That is the God who is enthroned above. It is an active government by which He reigns and rules. Psalm 93, verse 1, the Lord reigns. 
The devil does not reign. Man does not reign. God and man does not reign. Chance does not reign. Fate, blind fate does not reign. Karma does not reign. Good luck does not reign. Bad luck does not reign. The Lord reigns. That does not say the Lord once reigned in Old Testament times when he did so many mighty displays of his power, but this is halftime now and God is no longer working, but in the future, at the time of the second coming, God will reign then, but right now God is not reigning. No, this says every moment of every day, every day of human history, the Lord reigns. Any other view of God is idolatry. Any other view of God is unworthy of Him. Human history is from Him. His counsel, His will, His purpose, His predestination. It's all through Him. He is causing all things to work together for good according to his eternal purpose, and it is all to him. It's, it's, it's not to us, it is to him, to the honor and the glory of his name. He will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 48, verse 11 God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. And my glory, I will not share with another. There is nothing that ever happens on the stage of human history in the flow and in the course of world events that is any departure from his eternal purpose from before time began. Even on the worst days down here, there's no panic in heaven. Only his plan. You say... How could God's eternal purpose and plan include sin? You see this right here? You know what this is? It's a cross. What do you think happened on this cross? I think we can safely say it was the first degree murder of the Son of God. It was intentional, it was blatant, it was blasphemy. Evil men rose up and put to death the prince of life. It was the breaking of so many of the commandments. And yet, Peter said on the day of Pentecost, it was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to the cross. God before the foundation of the world, determined that his son would become the sacrifice for the sins of his people. And yet God used sin and evil and blasphemy to bring it to pass. 
that is but the tip of the iceberg, and that is but a microcosm of the larger picture that God is at work throughout the world. He is not the author of sin, and He is not the author of evil, but God is using sin and using evil for His own glory and for the good of His children. That's a lot to get your arms around. You've asked me to speak on the meaning of history. The meaning of history is for God to put on display the greatness of who He is carried out in the flow of circumstances and events upon this earth with a master plan that He will pull it all together in the end. Now I said creation, history and providence. Allow me just a moment for salvation. I I would need ten more meetings tonight to tell you about how salvation is from Him and through Him and to Him. Let me succinctly summarize this as best I can. Let me give you three headings under salvation. The plan of salvation is from God. The provision of salvation is from God. And the people of salvation is from God. Romans 1 verse 1 defines the gospel as the gospel of God. That does not mean that the gospel is about God, though it is. That means that God is the author of the gospel. He is the source of the gospel. He is the origin of the gospel. The infinite genius of God is the one who designed the plan of salvation. And that the whole human race would be plunged into sin by the original sin of the first man, Adam, and his sin imputed to the entire human race, and everyone born subsequently into the human race would be born with a a nature of sin that would choose to sin, and we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God the Father would choose his own Son, his only begotten Son, to come into this world, to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless and perfect life, to obey all the requirements of the law that you and I could never keep, to go to a cross, to be lifted up to die, that all of the sins of all of the people who would ever believe upon Him would be transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us. He would bear our sins in His body upon the cross. He would shed His blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And that on that cross, He would propitiate the righteous anger of God. He would reconcile sinful man and holy God and bring them together in the blood of His cross. And with the redemption that is in His blood, He would purchase a people for Himself and pay our sin debt by His sacrifice upon the cross. He would be taken down, put in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, with all of the authority inherent within Him, He raised Himself from the dead. He walked out of that tomb, a risen, living, victorious Savior. He has ascended to heaven. He is enthroned upon high. All authority in heaven and earth have been given unto Him, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
I'm glad someone in this wax museum is awake. (laughs) Where do you think that plan came from? It's the gospel of God. God is the author of the plan of salvation. And it is God who sent His Son, who commissioned His Son to come into this world, to go to that cross and to be lifted up and to die in our place upon that cross. He was delivered over for our transgressions. Who delivered Him over? Was it Pilate? Was it the Jews who called out for Him to be crucified? Only at a base level. Ultimately, it was God the Father who delivered Him over upon that cross, and it was God the Father who poured out His eternal wrath upon His Son as He bore our sins in His body upon the cross. Not only did God plan it, God provided it. And God also chose the people who would believe upon His Son. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world and predestined us according to the kindness of His will. God did not have to choose any of us to be saved. We could all die and go to hell with no salvation and God would remain perfectly holy for the wages of our sin is death. We all deserve to die and to go to hell and be the eternal object of His wrath and to be damned forever and to suffer under the torment of His vengeance. We are lawbreakers and we are cursed but out of His mercy and out of His grace. God royally elected a vast number, a vast multitude that no one can number. God set His heart of love upon His chosen ones before time began. And a part of His eternal will was the salvation of a people. This is all from God. It's through God. In that within time, not only did God purpose where you would be born and, and, and where you would live, but God also purposed the circumstances where you would hear the gospel. But more than that, God by His grace in the lives of all of His chosen ones God opens their eyes to see what they could have never seen and open their ears to hear what they could have never heard. And He opens their heart. In fact, He takes out a heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh and gives them the gifts of repentance and faith so that they may call upon the Lord. This is all from the Lord. Our new birth, being born again from above, it is from God. Say, let me ask you, regarding your physical birth, What part did you play in that? Were you choosing who your parents would be? Oh, I'd like to be married to Mrs. I'd like to be the son or daughter of Mrs. Johnson. She looks so nice. I'd like to have her brown eyes. No, it was God 
who brought us into this world. And in like manner, it was God who brought us into His kingdom. We were born from above. Salvation is all through Him. Everything about our salvation. The only contribution we have made is the sin that was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author of our faith. He is the grantor of repentance. He has even given us the saving faith to believe upon His Son, Jesus Christ. That is why when we get to heaven... For all of us who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and when we are given a crown, that crown will remain in our hand for about half a second and we will cast it before His throne of grace in recognition that all things are from Him and through Him and now to Him. He is the one who chose us. He is the one who predestined us. He is the one who redeemed us. He is the one who regenerated us. He is the one who has preserved us. He is the one who has brought us all the way home to glory. Therefore, all praise and honor goes to God. That's a God-centered theology. Have you bought in? If not, you will never see history correctly. You will never understand salvation correctly. You will never understand the created universe correctly. From Him, through Him, to Him, all things. What is a God-centered doxology? To God. Not to us, not to God and us, not to our church, not to our parents, not to our neighbors, not to our teacher, not to our pastor, not to the evangelist, not to a good book, to God. Be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you change anything in the first half of this verse... You cannot say the last half of the verse. If you cannot say creation, history, providence, and salvation is from Him, through Him, and to Him, then you cannot say to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You can only be perplexed, be confused, be bewildered, be astonished, and have no answer other than what you have made up in your mind as a result of your own vain imagination. But if you say history, creation, providence, salvation is from Him and through Him and to Him, then you can stand up throughout all the ages to come And lift up your voice and declare, God, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we do have a few minutes for question and answer. Feel free to come forward and ask your questions of Dr. Lawson.
Yeah, well, the question is the subject of pain and suffering in light of what we have just heard. And that is a part of God's plan and design. Um, again, we look to the path that God chose for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone would have been shielded, it would have been Him. Yet he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and the excruciating agony of the cross as he suffered under Pontius Pilate as a crown of thorns were crushed onto his head as his side was ripped open with a cat of nine tails as the nails were driven into his hand as the spear was thrust to his side into his side but then even upon the cross as he suffered under the wrath of God. And only those who are the damned in hell this moment can even begin to know what he suffered spiritually upon that cross. Um, it's a part of God's plan, and it's a part of God's design. God uses pain and suffering to bring about his eternal purposes. This is so contrary to the prosperity gospel, uh, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel uh, that says if you ever have anything wrong going on in your life, you do not have enough faith. The reason Job suffered was not because there was anything wrong in his life, but because there was everything right in his life. Um, God uses suffering to bring us to himself. God uses suffering to conform us into the image of Christ. Um, that I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering. God uses suffering to um, enable us to have ministry to other people. To reach out to those who are also suffering and hurting. Um, it's a part of God's plan and design with infinite wisdom. And so therefore, as we suffer, we should ask, am I suffering because of sin in my life? And if so, repent and confess. Am I suffering unjustly because of the gospel? Then this is a glorious opportunity for me to endure and to be steadfast and it is our greatest testimonies come not when everything is perfect in our lives. Um, the gospel advances not in times of prosperity. The gospel advances in times of adversity. And so look at the early church. It was the persecution that helped them fulfill the Great Commission. It was the pain and the suffering that God used as a means to a higher end. So, um, obviously, there are so many things that more that can be said. There's not a simple answer, but what I have said is, I think, um, the answer ultimately. Yes, sir. Um, if this doesn't pertain to the topic at hand, don't answer it. But um, I was wondering, how can a young boy... Um, uh, have a godly uh, appreciation and, and joy in historical battles. How can a young man or a young boy? Yeah, both. Both, okay. Yeah. <laughs> have 
joy in the midst of his struggles? No, um, like you know how a young boy will wave around a sword and you know play cowboys and Indians, you know, okay. and like we, we we hope that's natural, but you know like how how can a young boy um, delight in reading like about wars in the past and you know have an appreciation of war, of wars or whatever without um, it being ungodly? Like how how can how can they? How can young boys be encouraged to see God's glory in that? I can honestly say I've never been asked that question. <laughs> but I thank you uh, for the question. Well, um, I, I think it begins with a doctrine of war, and there are just wars and there are unjust wars. And there are just wars that defend innocent lives that are within the will of God. And there are unjust wars that are provoked by an evil aggressor. We would not in any way approve of unjust war and pointing our children towards an unjust war as holding that up as some model of virtue. Um, God is a holy God. And God hates sin, and an evil war or an or a, a just, excuse me, unjust war. And I said it backwards earlier. Let me clarify: there is a just war, and there is an unjust war. And an unjust war is when an evil aggressor um, provokes trouble and brings harm to innocent people. There is no glory in that. There is a just war, which is the war of one who would protect innocent life. Now, I understand that in different parts of the world, there are different views on war, and I understand here in Canada there are views on war. Um, I go regularly to Russia and I always have to go back through this with the church in Russia that is very pacifistic and does not even teach to protect... If your daughter was being murdered, that you could step in and protect her life. Um, it, it is so bizarre the way their thinking has ended up. Um, it is right and it is just and it is good and it is holy to step in and protect innocent life. And so I think our children can look at the stories in the Old Testament and the story of Joshua and the story of Gideon and the story of Moses against Pharaoh and it's the same God. And it's the same God not only in the past but at the time of the second coming um, the blood of God's enemies will rise so high in Revelation 19, it will be higher than the horse's nostrils. That is a just war. And when Jesus comes back, he will have, his robe will be dipped in blood and is the blood of his enemies. And out of his mouth will come a sharp two-edged sword with which he will slay the evil. So I think we point our children to that which is good and right and holy. And there, there is a just war. And we would not want them to magnify um, or glory in an unjust war. Uh, I would go further and say 
what our children watch on television and what our children watch in videos and movies needs to be screened screened by by any Christian, and we would not want to um, glory in um, aggressors who kill needlessly innocent lives. So I, I don't know that I'm exactly hitting the target of your question, though um, I think what I said squares the scripture. Hi. Hi, Dr. Lawson. Thank Hi. you for your sermon tonight. Oh, um, thank you. I just had a question regarding what you were mentioning about predestination. and Yeah. When Christians are sharing or talking about the gospel with non-believers and the question comes up about why God chooses some and not chooses others, I know I've probably heard answers to that from different people many times, but do you have any advice about a good way to go about trying to address that topic or whether or not that should be even something that you try to focus on with yeah. somebody who's not a Christian because maybe there's another direction sure. to steer them? Well, I think it's a very good question, a very practical question. I would say two things. Number one, no one is saved by believing in predestination. We are saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was crucified for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he is the sole object of our saving faith. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The second thing I would say is, is that God often uses the subject of predestination and election, and I will even go so far as to say reprobation, to humble people and drive them to their knees to call out to God for mercy. Um, certainly that's true in the Bible. Certainly that's true in church history. Uh, the greatest evangelists this world have has known have been men who have preached election and predestination, even in their evangelistic sermons. I have even preached on reprobation, which is that God passes over the non-elect and leaves them in their sin, and have had people in a desperate state call me, come to me, and commit their life to Christ. And it brings a sense of urgency about the gospel, that behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. That you do not hold God at arm's length. God holds you in his hand. And, I mean, it goes back even to Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, and, and that you are but a spider that God holds by a, a thread, and he could release you and drop you at any moment, and you deserve to be in the flames of hell. And it is only his mercy that has held you up this moment to this point to believe in Christ and to seize the moment. And it, and it, it, it creates an alarm within the sinner's heart. So I'm not opposed to speaking on those subjects, and God has often used those subjects as a hammer to break the rocks of a hardened heart. Having said that, a person does not have to believe that in order to be saved. And Spurgeon used to use the illustration of a house on fire and someone who is up on the third floor and there's no way to go down the stairs and the flames are rising higher and higher and the fire department come and they put out a safety net 
and we say jump, jump, and the person up in the on the or let's say the tenth floor says, "Well, I need to know if I'm predestined to jump or not. <laughs> um, I, I need to know the origin of the fire." Um, I need to know what part man played in this fire and what part God. And Spurgeon says, no, just jump to safety, be saved, and we'll explain it all to you once you're out of the house on fire. I I think that is the normal um, progression. Um, We basically are all converted, not basically, so many of us have been converted in the past under a man-centered theology and as we grow in grace and grow in our understanding of the Bible, we grow into a God-centered theology. Now, that is not true in every case. Many are, are saved in a Reformed church where they have heard the truth. But to answer your question, people are saved by believing in Christ. You're, we could put it this way: You're saved by the plan of you're saved by the man of salvation, not by the plan of salvation. So you've got to believe upon Christ. Th- thank you for your questions; very thoughtful. I've faced that, and I think a lot of us here have. Someone else? Yes, sir. Your talk tonight. Mm-hmm. How important is it for Christians to know our own history, the history of the church? <laughs> Pretty broad. But yeah, yeah. The question is, how important is it for Christians to know our own history, meaning church history? I think enormously important. And many Christians today would think the church started five years ago. Um, many young people would think the church started four years ago, or six years ago, or whatever. Um, we need to understand that there is a long line of godly people down through the ages who have been who have been brought to faith in Christ, and we need to understand um, the battles they faced, the issues with which they were confronted, how they handled Scripture, how they responded to persecution and difficulty. And my own life has been enormously strengthened by studying great men and women of the faith. My own life has been inspired by great men and women of the faith. Uh, This is my preaching Bible. In the front, uh, that is a wood carving of John Rogers. He was born in 1500. He died in 1555. I just stood at the place where he was martyred about four weeks ago. Um, He is the first Marian martyr the first martyr burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. And his sin was finishing Tyndale's translation of the English Bible, bringing it into the English language. And his sin was preaching salvation by grace alone through faith alone. I can't tell you how I'm strengthened by heroic men and women who have gone before me. And they embolden me and they make me want to rise up in my generation and, and serve the Lord. So I, I think we desperately need to understand the issues of church history and specifically the biographies of church history. And we are, I think, well, um, well equipped when we have a basic understanding of the issues of church history. And I was sharing with Dr. Michael Haken, who introduced me, who is professor of church history 
at Southern Seminary that I have learned more theology in my study of church history than I did in my theology classes because church history has a way of getting to the bottom line, getting to the pivotal issues. Uh, In other words, not discussing how many angels can dance on the head of a needle or something, but to actually lock in on those issues by which continents turned and movements were birthed. Um, Church history has a way of putting a finger on the heartbeat um, within the body of Christ. So, thank you uh, for that question. Anyone else? I I know I preached longer than what I should have preached, but hey, I'm a guest speaker and I'm leaving tomorrow, so (laughs) what can you do but shish kebab me on the way out? Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, First of all, excellent sermon. I really enjoyed that. Um, But my friend actually wanted me to ask you this question. Is from someone that holds to predestination, from someone who holds to predestination. Can you address uh, actually two uh, passages in Scripture? One is Genesis 6, 6, where man had become so wicked, and God it says God was sorry he made man. Some translation says God, he relented. Yeah. Can so, I just answer that one real quick? Yeah. You, yeah. Uh, God is not a stoic sovereign. God is not indifferent towards our infirmities. Um, God has not only a mind and a will, but God has affections and God has emotions. Ephesians 4 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, And God is a holy God, and God cannot approve of evil nor of sin. And God is uh, deeply um, afflicted with our afflictions and with sin in the world. Mm-hmm. All right, second. Okay, the second one was chapter 32 of Exodus. And mm-hmm. this was just after the golden calf, and God was really mad at the Israelites, and then Moses uh, intercedes for them. Mm-hmm. And God appears to have changed his mind mm-hmm. in that passage sure. also. Sure. That's what's called an anthropomorphic expression that God communicates himself to us in in human-like ways with which we can understand. For example, as you read the Psalms, um, the hand of the Lord, the eye of the Lord, the ear of the Lord. God does not have a hand, God does not have an ear, and God does not have eyeballs. That is a figure of speech, a poetic figure of speech. Calvin said that God is so beyond our understanding. God is unfathomable as we as we inscrutable, as our text said tonight, that God has to come down and communicate to us on, in essence, a kindergarten level. If God were to communicate with us at his level, it would be like trying to pour the Atlantic Ocean into a Dixie cup. It's just not going to fit. And so God has come down and communicated with us in ways that we can understand using analogies and figures of speech and in ways that, uh, that we can grasp one part of what he is saying to us, and that is, um, that is an anthropomorphic expression. That is uh, from a human perspective, um, but it is not from, a div- from God's sovereign, eternal, divine perspective. And if, if we do not acknowledge this, 
once you take one step in that direction, you are going to be misinterpreting volumes of, of Scripture and end up with um, really idolatry of a God who is not even a God, a God of our own making. So that, that, would, that would be the answer to that. And what God wants us to know is that he, he is deeply grieved with the sin of the human race. And it's really not God who changes, it's man who changes. And either for the good or for the bad. Um, but that expression is really God showing that he has changed, but God doesn't change. Malachi 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. So God does not change. It's He is revealing himself to us in a way that would appear that the plan and the will of God is being altered. In reality, with that, it is only because man is changing. Thank you. I, I'm sorry. Thank you for your wonderful message tonight. Um, if those who are saved have been predestined, mm -hmm. but we are asked to pray without yeah. ceasing, and the prayer of a righteous man availeth, availeth much. Yes. How do our prayers <laughs> play a part in bringing God's purpose? Oh, that's a tremendous question. Come about. Yeah. Did you hear the question? I think everyone. Why pray? And um, once you understand, once we understand the doctrines of what we discussed tonight, if you're thinking, there are 44 questions that come to your mind, and you just raised one of the ones pretty high up on the list, then why pray? Number one, we are to pray because God is a prayer-hearing God. Number two, we are to pray because God is a prayer-answering God. Not only has God appointed the end, but he has appointed the means to the end. And the means to the end of the salvation of the elect is that we preach the gospel, that we pray for the lost, that we live godly and holy lives, that we show compassion to unbelievers, and all of this is also ordained by God. And um, God works through means, and prayer is one of the means by which God works. Do our prayers change God? The answer is nothing changes God. <laughs> Prayer changes us, if anything. But we have a very real part to play in the salvation of lost people as instruments in the hands of God to bring the gospel to them. To not only bring the gospel to them, but to urge them to commit their life to Christ. To plead with them. To invite them and summon them and then to pray over them. And I can tell you, uh, my 22-year-old son, I believe, was saved two months ago. What a joy to have been able to have prayed for his salvation. What a joy for my wife to have prayed that by the time he graduates from college, that he will be a Christian. 
and for him to be saved the night before his graduation. Um, I can't tell you the tears that would of joy that would fill this cup, rejoicing not only in heaven but in our hearts because we were able to play a part in petitioning the throne of grace to have mercy upon the salvation of our son. And it's not that he was a bad kid. The hardest people to reach are good people who think they're saved but who are not. And so... If you ever want to consult it, I have a message with Ligonier Ministry on their website, and I walk through seven reasons why we who believe in predestination pray. And R.C. Sproul followed me and spoke on why witness if there is predestination, and he walked into the pulpit and he said, I'm just going to take the seven points that Dr. Lawson laid out And those will be my seven points now for this message. And the answer is the same. So I I would encourage you to, if you can, to access that on the web page. And I have a more systematic, laid out answer that takes into account many, many, many verses that, that answer that question. But what that tells me is you're really thinking. And if we don't raise that question in our mind, it's that we haven't thought it through profoundly enough. So, great question. I'm sure the Lord had you raise it. This question first. Oh, okay. Sure. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Lawson. Yeah. Um, I have a question about how you would go about evangelizing two people. Because, like, I guess Armenians would say, Jesus died for you, Jesus loves you. Would yeah. Calvinists do the same thing, or in third person, and then repent, and then Jesus died? Yeah, something. I think. Could you hear the question? Yeah. How do we couch the gospel as those of us who would be would hold to the sovereignty of God in salvation? And what we are called to do is to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, and to we preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach the person and work and terms of the gospel, uh, the person and work of Christ in the terms of the gospel. And what I say is that Christ came into this world to die for sinners. Upon that cross, he was lifted up and he bore the sins of many upon that tree. He became a curse for us. He shed his blood to make a perfect atonement for all who will call upon his name. And if you will call upon his name, he will save you. There is a sacrifice that has been made for all who, who come to him. Uh, him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He invites you to come to him. He says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This Savior is inviting you to come to him. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. I would then say, why do you procrastinate? Why, why, why do you delay? When, when the gates of paradise are swung open right now, and, 
You, you are to enter by the narrow gate. No one else can make this decision for you. This is a decision that you must make. You must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. I call upon you this moment by faith receive Jesus Christ. Oh, He loves sinners. He loves to receive sinners. Tell Him what a great sinner you are. He's come into the world not for those who are righteous, but for those who are sick. He is a good physician. He will receive you to Himself if you will come to Him. Tell Him what your sins are. Say, I I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. He has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He will save you if you will turn to Him and believe upon Him and commit your life to Him. And His blood will cleanse you and wash you of all of your sin. He will give you a new start. He will give you a new life. He will give you a new home in heaven. He will give you a new family, the people of God. He will give you new friends. He will give you forgiveness and pardon. He will give you everything that you truly need. Why would you delay? Why would you wait? Why would you not come right now and give your life to Christ? I mean, that's how I would present Christ to one who does not know the Lord. Um, I would say, look, behold Him upon the tree, dying for sinners, crushed for our iniquities. Call upon Him. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Yeah. Uh, good evening. Thank you for coming. Uh, my question is this. Uh, in the Scripture it says that uh, none shall perish, but all should come to repentance, right? The Lord is willing that none shall perish and all should come to repentance. So my question is, is this. Why would God predestine people when He's willing for all of them to come to repentance? Yeah. Thank you. Certainly. That's Second Peter 3, verse 9, and I think He is not willing for any of His own to perish. He is not willing for any of His chosen ones to perish. Um, he is, he is, he is long-suffering even with the elect. Which, which one of us were saved the first time we heard the gospel? God was so long-suffering. He's not willing for any of His chosen ones to perish. I believe that that's the interpretation of that. Uh, there is also, uh, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, Ezekiel 18, verse 4 um, I, I, I do not think that God takes uh, joyful pleasure in the damnation of the wicked, yet, nevertheless, it is a part of the eternal plan and, and purpose of God. I, I don't know that I heard the, the, or I can remember the last part of the question, but the, the, certainly th- these are difficult verses to fit together, and it's what's called the analogy of Scripture, that the Bible never contradicts itself. The Bible speaks with one voice. And so how do you combine God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son with Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? It's going to take some thinking. Uh, An answer that fits on the back of a bumper sticker is not going to solve the solution. There's going to have to be some profound thought and careful inquiry into the Scripture how this harmonizes together into one body of truth that never is, is at, in contradiction to itself at any point. And so with the second 
Peter 3, verse 9, I mean, there's going to have to be some profound thought. And just because one verse says this and 2,000 verses say this does not mean that the one verse will turn 2,000 verses. Um, We have to see one verse in light of 2,000 verses, not see 2,000 verses in light of one verse. You understand? Uh, you can pick up a, bo- a broken uh, glass of, let's say, a green glass that's just a sliver. If you put it above your eye, you would assume the entire world is green. No, that's just one little sliver of gl- glass. The entire world is not green. You could take one verse, and if you want to try to read the entire Bible through one verse, you can end up with some pretty wacky doctrines and distorted verses or distorted uh, positions No, the entire rest of the Bible must weigh in on the right interpretation of this one text. And there are so many verses that teach predestination and the divine sovereignty of God. This drives us back to 2 Peter 3 verse 9. And to more carefully consider at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1 is identified who the any are. And you do understand the word, the word all and the word any and the word world have multiple uses in the Bible. For example, the word world, cosmos, just in the Gospel of John alone is used ten different ways. And so when someone would say, well, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, doesn't God love the whole world redemptively? You would say, so which of the ten different ways that the word world is used in the Gospel of John? You're just assuming that it's one of those ten, do you even know the other nine? Um, The word all is used in multiple different ways. It it sometimes means all without exception. At other times it means all without distinction. I mean, you need that. For example, we read in John's Gospel, the whole world went after Christ. Did it? Did Eskimos go after Christ in the first century? Did Aztec Indians go after Christ in the first century? Did, did Indians and Afghanistan people go after Christ in the first century? No, all doesn't always mean all. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Do all come to Christ? Will there not be souls in hell? All does not always mean all. Any does not always mean any. World does not always mean world. You have to be a careful exegete and linguistic student of Scripture to understand the meanings of words. Tyler, right? Correct. I I know one person. (laughs) Dr. Lawson, tonight you took us through various stations, um, Psalms, Isaiah, Colossians, Ephesians, all which shout out and scream out to the total sovereignty of God Uh over everything, whether it's the grass or personal salvation of people. So my question to you is, why do people have such a difficult time with this doctrine? Yeah. Well, why do people have such difficult... I'll use myself as an example. I grew up believing in free will, Arminian, man-centered theology. I was saved, but I didn't even know what the sovereignty of God was. I didn't even know what election or predestination was. And I went to seminary, and I'm sitting in class, and the professors begin to teach this. And uh, this is the truth. This cannot be. And I argued with professors, and I argued with students. No one wanted to go to coffee break with me. 
whatever arguments you would be raising, like to me, why, 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 why? I've, I've already been down this path, and I have argued with some great minds, professors, pastors, authors, theologians, fellow students, and the reason I did not believe in the sovereignty of God is, is not because I knew too much about the Bible. It's because I knew too little about the Bible. And I went to a seminary that in four years we covered every verse in the Bible. We started in Genesis 1-1, we ended in Revelation 22, and I was forced to read and study and write in one way or another on every verse in the Bible. Well, I saw a few verses. I thought, well, I can explain this in different ways. But then there began to be entire chapters in the Bible. Um, I, I cannot explain entire chapters in the Bible to go a different way from what they so plainly, obviously say. I thought the Mississippi River was flowing south to north, but it was flowing north to south, and try as I may to reroute the Mississippi River, I couldn't make it flow in any other way. And I thought, well, if this is true, then why did I leave my career? Why am I living in a servant's quarters in an alley in Dallas? Why have I given up an easy life? If everyone's going to be saved, he's going to be saved. And every one of those questions I was asking were, were prideful, self-centered, doesn't God need me questions. And God needed to humble me, and this truth was the great humbler. This truth is the most pride-crushing, God-exalting, Christ-glorifying, joy-producing, evangelism-motivating, missions-launching, holiness-pursuing truth that there is. And for me, once I saw it, all of a sudden I see it everywhere now. It's like rabbits. They're multiplying throughout my Bible. I go to sleep at night and someone's putting more of these verses in the Bible. And every place I look up, it's everywhere. And I, and I realized I, I have been just reading isolated verses. I haven't been reading through entire books in the Bible I've just been cherry-picking like devotional literature. You know, I'll grab a verse here, the next day I'll grab a verse here, and I can just totally uh, live in denial of the rest of the Bible as if it doesn't exist. But th those verses, I was forced to deal with it. I had to take a pen and a piece of paper, and I had to write out explanations for these 2 Peter 3, verse 9, all of these hard verses, and I could not explain them away. So why do people not believe this, number one, they have never been well taught. There is a famine in the land for the hearing of the word of the Lord, and my people perish for a lack of knowledge. It's not that we are too Bible literate, it's that we have too little understanding of the Scripture. Second is pride and arrogance, and I use myself as my own example of that. Um, Third, it's just a denial and a, refuse, a refusal to deal with reality um, and a refusal to look at major sections of Scripture that... I, I have written a 600-page book that deals with every verse in the Bible on the sovereignty of God. I, I started in Genesis 1, verse 1, and I go all the way to Revelation 22, 
and I cover it author by author. I start with Moses, I go to Joshua, I go through, through, through David, through Solomon, through Isaiah, through Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, the minor prophets, uh, Jesus and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, uh, Peter, Paul, James, author of Hebrews, John, and just lie, uh, bring in every one of those verses. And there are so many verses, there's a Bible index in the back, and they had to triple column it because there are so many verses, it just goes on page after page after page after page after page. And so it's like, it, it's like, it's an undeniable truth. I mean, you would have to be blind in a room with the lights out and your Bible upside down to not see this. And then your eyes are closed. I, I, I mean, there it is. Deal with reality. Now, I, I, I know I need to be kind and patient, but I, I'm, I can hear my wife right now talking to me. Um, and listen, it took me two entire years. I was a single man. I lived by myself. I, li- I, I ate every meal by myself. Um, I, all I had was time to think for two years, laying in my bed, driving in the car, sitting at a table. I mean, I just thought this, thought this, thought this. So I, I need to give people time as well. It took me time. It took me that long to swallow my pride. It took me that long to open my eyes. It took me that long to investigate the Scripture. I mean, God is God. So, we live in such a day of spiritual dearth that God has been brought down to our level. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 50. God says, you thought that I was just like you. That was the sin of the day. You thought, God says, you think that I'm just like you. You have lowered me and brought me down to your level and you think I'm a celestial bellhop, you think I'm a genie in a bottle, you rub it and I'll act, you, you, you think I'm your servant, I'm going to respond to you. That's, that is where, for the most part, the church, the church in America is. But it's not just America. It, it's, it's around the globe. So every great movement in church history, the high ground has always been to restore a high view of God. A high view of God leads to high worship. A low view of God leads to low base worship. A high view of God leads to high and holy living. A low view of God leads to low gutter living. You tell me who God is and I will tell you everything else about your life. The most important thing in your mind is what you think about when you think of God. A.W. Tozier wrote that years ago. The most important thought to ever come into your mind is what comes into your mind when you think of God. Everything else is a ripple effect. It's a domino effect. It's, a, it's an overflowing of your thoughts of God. So we've got to get God right. In order for worship, evangelism, missions, godly living, everything else to be right, everything is hinging on this. It's not hinging on mood music. It's not hinging on our programs. It's not hinging upon um, methodology. It's hinging on God, the restoration of God in His own church. People perish for there is no vision of God. 
So we desperately need this. That's what happened in the Great Awakening. It's what happened in the Reformation. It's what happened in the Great in the Puritan Age. It's what happened in the modern missions movement. It, it's what happens whenever there is a true movement of God. People come back to a high view of God, and we've been in the valley for a very long time. You get God right, you get the church right. When you get the church right, it has an effect on the world and the culture. So the first domino has to be to get God right. And everything else flows from that. We need, we, need, we need to have a big God, high view of God. Are you a big Godder is the question. All right, I can, I can go, I guess, too long, sorry. Um, they usually put a hook around my neck and are dragging me <laughs> so people can go home. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.